Good morning, everybody. Welcome to church this morning. It's, it's happy to see all of you here. God's been putting this verse on my heart. And if you grow up in church, this is the first verse you learn. It's the first verse you learn. John three sixteen. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But here's the point that God's been pointing out this week to me is so often, especially if you grew up in church, you, you kind of lose the power of that verse. You, you're just like, oh, for God's love of the world, they're blah, 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 right? And, and God's been pointing out the power of the first two words, for God. Lives change, situations change, circumstances change when for God. When God moves, things change. For God, things change. We have freedom. So as we jump back into worship here, we don't worship because it's not about us. We worship because we already have freedom. God's already moved. And so as we jump back into worship, let's remember that it's about God and it's for God. You know, this morning, most Sundays, uh, when I get up, I, I just spend some time reading the Psalms and the Proverbs. And uh, this morning I was doing that for a little bit and then all of a sudden I felt like the Lord just kind of pushed me over to Matthew chapter 6 in verses 31 to 34. And, and what it says in there is it, it kind of just talks about a people who are often worried about life, worried about provision, worried about being taken care of. And as I read that, I was reminded that that just sounds so much like us. Every day, always a little bit worried. Is God going to provide? Is he going to take care of us? Is he going to do it? Is he going to do it today? Is he going to do it tomorrow? And then he reminded me of verse 33, and he says, And he will give you all you need from day to day if you live for him and make the kingdom of God your primary concern. That's what we choose to do, not to focus on the stuff anymore. And I think that's what we did today. We just chose to honor him in the midst of whatever's going on. And I just feel like the Lord's saying he was proud. I feel that this morning, that he was proud of his people because they honored him. Father God, we honor you. You are such a good God. God, we easily get focused on this other stuff. But Father, we just need to focus on you. You are the answer. You are the solution. You are everything. God, we just say you are good. You are amazing. And we thank you. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Wow. Sometimes you can look up into the sky and not see stars or planets or constellations or anything. You know they're there, but you can't see them. But this place this morning has been like an observatory where we've been able to use that telescope. And once you use the telescope, you look through the telescope and you say, oh my goodness, 
there's constellations, there's planets, there's things around the planets, there's moons, there's, there's all this going on. There's the Milky Way and other galaxies, things that I had no imagination that it really existed. But now this thing has been opened up to me and now I see these things are true. The things that the naked eye can't see are real. The naked eye just can't see them. And so, Lord, this morning, as you brought us into this place a little bit, we choose to believe in the things that the naked eye can't see. We choose to believe in the things mm, that have been planted in our hearts far more, far more deeply than our human ear could hear or that our human eye could see or that our, even our human mind could, could think of. The Spirit has convinced us of these things in our heart. You know, as we just focus more and more on Jesus, we are going to see more and more and more and more and more. That's it. We stay focused on Him. Wow. I don't think God's quite done because what God's been putting on my heart goes along with that. Every single one of us is created with a hole in our heart and the only thing that can fill it is an encounter with Jesus. And I feel like there's a call this morning for, for, for those gaps to be filled. That, that there might be someone in here who you've never had an encounter with Jesus. And today's the day. And I feel like there's others of us in here who've been praying for people for, for years and for time and time and time again. And, and we're seeing nothing, but I feel like, like it's time. And so I'm going to ask if, if that's you, if, if you've never had an encounter with Jesus or there's someone in your life that you've been believing for, just stand up. If there's, there's a family member that you've been like, God, what is going on? Why don't you encounter them? The word I hear this morning is that God is about to breathe. Hello? God's about to breathe onto every single one of these people. And the word for this community this year, for Spruce Grove, for this area, is that God is going to breathe new things. God is going to breathe into areas of our community that we could not imagine. There have been, even with, uh, with the youth and with um, some of our plans this year, God's breathing new ideas and God's creating connections where connection seems impossible. And I feel like, like for all of us that are standing and we're believing for someone that God's going to breathe into those areas and he's going to create connection where connection seems impossible. And so, God, we thank you for what you're going to do. We thank you for the breath that you're going to breathe out. You're going to breathe out. You're going to breathe out onto every single person that's represented here and every single person that they're standing for and every single person in our community. Let's welcome Jim Donater. Hey, family. It's good to be home. We've been out for three weeks um, and just got home from Egypt, which means I am seriously jet-lagged. <laughs> so if I kind of ramble a bit and fumble a bit, you'll, you'll laugh at me. I know. That's how that goes in family. Okay. Um, that said, I, I did want to give just a little bit of testimony about, about Egypt. Um, 
and, and about some of the things there. But the, the biggest thing for me was the people that we connected with. It's kind of interesting that you have to go to the other side of the world, you know, and then connect with people. And you think, well, you know, we, we have people here we could be connecting with. Um, you know, do we really have to go to the other side of the world for that? The, the, the biggest impact for me, we, we had dinner um, after the gathering was over. So we were there for a gathering, a global gathering. And after the gathering was over, we had dinner with a couple that actually we had met the wife at the Montreal gathering uh, a year and a half ago. Um, she had come from Egypt for that gathering and then uh, made a connection particularly with Perry and Laverne Cundert. And Perry and Laverne were with us in Egypt, so that was also fabulous to be able to connect up with them and spend time with them. But anyway, so they invited us to dinner. So we went to this restaurant and the restaurant was amazing. Uh, it's called Falfella. And uh, we ate pigeon. We did. Yeah, for real. Uh, it was actually really good. Um, we ate a whole bunch of other things as well. But I got to speak with, so the couple's names are Nancy and Nader. And Nader, interesting guy. He really felt like God was, was calling him a number of years ago. So he's a young fellow. He's a, well, young. <laughs> At this point, he's 31. For me, that's a young fellow. Right. right, Lauren? Yeah, that's young. Okay. And he felt like God was really calling him to pray for people to be healed. And I'm sad that I don't see Tyson sitting here. Uh, anyway, and... Uh, so he said he began to pray for people to be healed, and he began to pursue anybody who had kind of a healing ministry as well and, and get, get prayed for and, and, and prayed anointing over and whatever. And he said, and I prayed for people, and I prayed for people, and then he said, I started to go to the hospital, and I would walk the halls in the hospital, and i go into rooms, and i ask people if I could pray for them, and i pray for them. And, um, and he said, now, he's an engineer by training. So he kept track. Of course he did. <laughs> That's because he didn't have the personality to be an accountant. No. Anyway, <laughs> any engineers in the room? No? Okay, I'm safe. Okay, good. No. Uh, actually, he's, he's a wonderful guy. Um, so he, he, uh, he kept track. He prayed for 287 people who didn't get healed. 286. But number 287 got healed of liver cancer. Okay? Liver cancer is always fatal. We don't have a cure for liver cancer today. He now has a list of 65 people who have been healed of cancer, specifically, as he's prayed for them. He has lists of people who have been healed of all sorts of things. And I'm thinking, you know, we have such a weird superior attitude here sometimes, right, about third world countries, right? So we think, well, we'll just bring our, you know, our wonderful faith and our doctrine over from here over to Egypt. And, uh, and we'll teach those people a few things. And it's, you know what, I'm serious now. I, I, I am going to work to bring Nader over here to run a healing school for us. Because this young man has, it's the funniest thing. He goes around by taxi, and every time he gets in a taxi, he starts up a conversation with the taxi driver. 
more often than not, he leads them to the Lord. This is in a Muslim country where that's not really allowed. So, anyway, that to me was such an impacting thing to just sit and chat. And he's, he's all excited about all this stuff. He's just telling us about all this stuff that's going on. Um, and, you know, he's got a day job. Um, you know, he does logistics for a group of hotels, um, supply chain management, you know, whatever. He's a very, very bright guy. But I just thought, wow, you know, some of these things where somebody just has the faith to continue, to continue, to continue, to push through, to push through, 286, writing them down, you know, not discouraged because, well, we're going to get there. Anyway. So that, that was a, a particular testimony I wanted to share uh, from our time away because it, it stirred me up. Curtis, did you have anything that you were interested in sharing? This is secondhand revelation, so I'll try to <laughs> articulate it as best as possible. But one of the most significant things for me during our time at the gathering was on the last day there was a, uh, there was a representation there of Messianic Jewish people. Um, who were releasing something from the stage. And what the, uh, the guy who was releasing started talking about is the origin of one of the words for family in the Bible. And the, the word, I can't remember exactly how it's, how it's pronounced, but it's broken up into three pieces. The first part means what, the last part means comes out of, and the middle part means the handmaiden. So what comes out of the handmaiden is one of the Hebrew words for family. And this was so significant because in this is first, this word is first used in reference to Hagar, the handmaiden of Sarah, who was Egyptian. And so, you know, Hagar and Abraham and Hagar have Ishmael, their son. The revelation of family actually comes from Hagar. And I was so struck by this because I was like, Okay, so, you know, what he was talking about, we come over to Egypt and we're thinking we can bring doctrine or all these kinds of things. Here's what we can bring. But actually, the revelation of family for the body of Christ has to come out of Egypt because that's where the origins of family are, according to the Hebrew language. And I was so struck by that. So if you wonder about the significance of going to some of these gatherings and going internationally, it's actually we are sowing into something that will come out, and we're already reaping that. We're already reaping that as the Egyptian church is mobilizing. We've seen in our congregation over the last year or so just crazy things that have been changing in terms of our perspective of family and I mean, Mark and, and John Lowndes and I were in Egypt last December, and there's seeds that are being sown in our congregation. So I was just like struck that, you know, it is worth it to pray for Egypt. It is worth it to pray for the nations. And by sowing into those nations, we're going to be reaping amazing things. I've got to say that these Messianic Jews, we didn't actually talk about Jerusalem in Egypt and we, we had to be very, very careful, and when they were on the stage, I don't even think they announced where they were, um, because it wasn't exact. It's, it's a dangerous place for them, and so we usually said that, you know, when we, when we went to Disneyland instead of when we went to Jerusalem or whatever, we kind of used different words, but uh, the gathering itself uh, t- this morning just reminded me of, of the, the one meeting where for, I don't even know, an hour half an hour, we just lifted up the name of Jesus. We called him Yeshua. 
his name, but uh, just a, a constant pushing in to the name of Jesus. And so I was, I was so encouraged this morning that we had the same sound, the same desire to lift up the name of Jesus. He's the one that's going to change everything. He's the one that's going to bring freedom to the nations. And um, yeah, it was just a, a real honor to be there. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things that it never, you know, never really hit in my mind prior, again, I mean, I've read Isaiah 19 many times, and it talks about the road from Egypt through Israel to Assyria. And, and it talks about, you know, that, that coming to be. But it also says, my people Egypt. This is God speaking, and he says, Egypt, my people. So it was kind of an interesting thing, because there's only two nations he's ever called my people. Um, and so, again, it was a, a, a very interesting and impactful time for us. All right, well, Heavenly Father, I ask that you would come and bless this time, that we can study your word together. I ask that you would bring a now word to each one of us in, in Jesus' name. Um, there is a real attack in our nation today on identity. And... And this is a fundamental attack. I mean, it's a fundamental strategy of the enemy. Not that we need to spend a lot of time working on strategies of the enemy. If we keep our eyes on God, we'll be fine. But there is a strategy of the enemy to attack on identity, on who you are, who God has created you to be, because then it, it, it diminishes who God is. Because if God made a mistake when he made you, then... Clearly, he's not that great. And so there's this attack on identity. And uh, a couple months ago, uh, Jackie Denotter had, had kind of pointed Gaylene at a book uh, written by Ted Decker. Now, many of you will know Ted Decker. Uh, he writes a lot of fiction. Um, but in this case, it is a series of, of meditations, of devotions, ten, 10 devotions. It's called The Forgotten Way. And I spent some time reading The Forgotten Way, and I want you to know that, you know, I'm going to have to give some credit here this morning to Ted Decker because a lot of sort of the, the, the fundamental study that went on to put together what I'm going to talk to you about this morning comes from those, the first five of those ten, ten devotions. So he did a lot of my footwork for me, so thanks, Ted. But um, if you want to know who you are, really, the first thing you need to know is who God is. Not know about him. Okay, we know about celebrities, but we don't know them. We don't want to just know about God. We want to know him. In fact, at the beginning with Adam and Eve, it says they walked in the garden and they knew God. And the word knew there is the same word that's used when it says Adam knew Eve and she bore him a son. Okay? So this is an intimate knowing of God. And we can experience that. So let's, let's talk about God for a minute. You know that he is the creator of absolutely everything in this universe. And he did it with a word. He created everything from the smallest subatomic particles all the way through to galaxies, the universe. And it all hangs together 
perfectly. I don't know if you know this, and I'm a bit of a physics nerd, right? And I've said that before. And, and I love the idea of, you know, sort of the subatomic particles and the things that we don't understand about our physical universe right now. I, you know, one of my favorite things is to say, huh, why did that just happen? And we say, well, gravity. We say, well, what's gravity? The answer, we have no idea. You know, here we are, 2018, science has figured out everything. Well, except for some really, really obvious stuff that's right in your face all the time, like gravity. We don't know how that works. Magnetism, yep, no real clue on that one. Don't know, don't know how that works. We know it does. We can measure it. We can use it. We can create electricity with it. We can do all sorts of stuff with it, but yeah, we don't really know what that is. And then there's this stuff that holds atoms together, keeps them from flying apart. So an atom, I don't know if you know this, but an atom has a nucleus to it, a little piece in the middle. And if the nucleus of an atom was the size of the tip of my thumb, then there's electrons whizzing around it. Those electrons would be like a, a grain of sand, and they wouldn't fit in this building, whizzing around that little thing about the size of my thumb. So an atom is mostly just empty space, with these tiny little electrons whizzing around this really tiny little nucleus. And you know what holds it all together? No idea. No idea. There's this thing called the strong nuclear force, and there's this thing called the weak nuclear force that we can kind of detect, and we just, we just don't know what it is. There's so much more going on in our physical realm that we can't see, than there is that we can see. God created it all. What if, and this is not doctrine, don't quote me, this is not in the Bible, I'm making it up off the top of my head, but what if God is actually holding it all together himself, explicitly? What if, if he stopped, the whole thing just flies apart and it's gone? Okay? What if? Because we have no idea what it is. We just know what the effects are. What if there's all sorts of other dimensions? What if there's... I don't know. Okay. God is infinite. Now, here's a math lesson. Sorry. Start with physics, we'll go to math. Infinite. If something is infinite and you take something away from it, what is it now? Yeah, it's still infinite. That's the thing with infinite. It just goes on and on. It doesn't, doesn't, really, doesn't really stop. It's really, really big. And then when it's that big, it's bigger yet. And then it continues. And then if you take infinity and you multiply it times, it doesn't matter. It's still infinity. It just, it just doesn't matter. Divide it by it. It doesn't matter. It's still infinite. And God is infinite. So what is he lacking? Nothing. What's he scared of? God's not scared of anything? What about Satan? Is God scared of Satan? Okay. Let's be clear here. Satan is not God's enemy. Satan is our enemy. Satan is a created being, and God could uncreate him with a thought the same way that he created everything. Okay? This is not something that scares God. Can he be surprised? 
I want to talk to you about something that you've heard here before, and it's really worth it. So if any of you have missed it, you're going to learn something quite worthwhile here. Here we go. This is my Dave Grauweiler special. All right. Expectation. Reality. This part here, that's called disappointment, right? When expectation's here and reality's here, that thing is disappointment. But what if you already know everything? Can you ever have a wrong expectation? No. Can God ever be surprised? No. And if his expectations are never unmet, can he ever be disappointed in you? Can God be disappointed in you? No. Because it didn't surprise him. Because nothing you ever did, right or wrong, surprised him. So he can't be disappointed because he knew already. It's just fine. Hmm. Can our questions upset him? He knew you had that question already. He's not going to get upset if you have a question. He knows you have the question. That's fine. Ask it. It's never going to upset him. That's who he is. Now, your origin and your identity are in God. In Acts 17, 28, it says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. You are sons and daughters of God. So who's your daddy? Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Ooh. Ooh. Wow. Okay. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. You were made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. You are like God. What? Absolutely. And it means you don't really need cosmetic surgery because God doesn't. Now, here's another interesting thing. You were formed in God's mind before the foundations of the world. He already knew you, and he knew everything about you already because he had created you fully in his mind already. Believe me? Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Ephesians 1, 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. What? I'm not holy and blameless. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Psalm 139, 16. 
You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Nothing you do can surprise God because he's written it all in his book already. Before the foundations of the world. Before Jesus came and died on the cross, he already knew you and knew he was going to save you. Pretty critical. Outside of time and space, you have always existed. And so you were predestined before the foundations of the earth to be his son or daughter. He wrote it in the book. So you know what? When trouble threatens, when you're unsure, just imagine that you're with that God. Because you don't have to imagine it. Because you are. That's the God you're with. So why do we fear? You know there's no fear in love. 1 John 4.18 says, Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And that shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. Ever afraid of being punished by God? Then that means that we don't have a clear revelation of his love. I'm just reading scripture, so I'm not making this stuff up. Romans 8, 38, 39. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know what? When we make God's love conditional on our behavior, we are creating God in our own image. And that's a scary idea. Because that's not God. That's some idea that we're creating. That's an idol that we make about who God is that isn't him. Do you know that he's not impatient or prone to fits of anger? God is perfect in love, which means he can't fear. And all negative emotions are rooted in fear, so he doesn't have them. Now, as we grow in our love, we will fear less. And we'll fear God not at all. Awe? Yes. Absolutely. We will be in awe and the the fear of the Lord in terms of awe, absolutely. It just grows and grows and grows. I heard somebody say the other day that, you know, and um, uh, Jen, you were reading from Revelation, right? And, uh, you know, there's these beasts and they have eyes all over. And and, and I heard somebody say, well, the reason they have eyes all over is because they're in God's presence and and, and, and two eyes is not nearly enough. And they just keep growing more eyes because there's just so much more to see. Um, So, we can be in awe, but we can be in love. 
we're always afraid that we aren't going to measure up. You know, we're not holy. We're not going to measure up. And so we stay distant because we're afraid. And sin does cause distancing when we take on guilt and shame. Uh, but he loves us like a father teaching a child to walk, right? And Pastor Mark has used this illustration before, but I'm going to do it again. So you get a little child. You know, I've got my, my grandsons these days, and that's, that's, that's really good stuff for those of you who haven't got there yet. But anyway, when you get this little toddler and you're teaching them to walk, do you look at them as they kind of plop? on their butt, and you go, nope, that's not how you do it. You straighten up. No, no, get those legs straight. Get that back straight. Oh, look, if you can't do it right, then just cut it out. Don't do it at all. Well, none of us would ever learn to walk. you got to be able to toddle before you can walk. And when you're toddling, you're going to fall down lots. And that's how God sees us as we're, as we're toddling towards the kingdom, as we're learning to love, is that He's not upset at you. He's looking at you when you've plopped down. He goes, okay, well, let's just pick you back up here, and let's set you back on those feet, and let's, let's try that again, and this time, you know. And, 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 ooh, three steps this time. All right. As he's cheering you on. And here's one. Jesus did not come to save you from the anger of the Father. Jesus said, I and the Father are one, which means he would have come to save you from his own anger, which doesn't make any sense at all. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love keeps no record of wrongs. So does God love? So is he keeping records of wrongs? Does he turn the other cheek? Does he love his enemies? Interesting. Look, if you're unsure that you can be loved like that, just ask him. Because he will show you. Let me tell you the story of your father for a minute. And I realize I'm going on with this, but the fact is, if you want to know who you are, you've got to know who he is. So here's the story of the father. Um, most of you know this, but you would probably call it the story of the prodigal son. I think that's actually a mistake. I think it's the story of the father. Okay? So I'm going to read the whole thing. All right. So this is Luke 15, 11 through 32. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. <clears throat> Don't even think about it. <laughs> okay. So his father agreed. What? Yes, his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. So I'm going to get all pedantic here. Pedantic means teachy. And I'm going to tell you that we also totally have ruined the word prodigal in the church. Prodigal means it comes from the root of prodigious, and it just means someone who spends a lot. It doesn't mean someone who goes away and comes back, just so you know. The prodigal son was the son who spent everything. 
Anyway, we can still. It's just funny because we, you know, we have all these songs and everything that call the prodigals home and stuff, and it doesn't even mean that. But okay, we can mean that if we want. <laughs> you can mean whatever you want. Okay. So he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant." So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But, so his father's not really listening here anymore. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. And when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what's going on? Your brother's back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. Well... The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. So now, the older brother's being all judgmental. Right? So you got the younger one who went off and wasted everything because he wanted to do his own thing, but he's finally come to his senses. Now we got the older brother, and he's being all judgmental. Well, he's in for it. So his father came out and begged him. Well, maybe he's not in for it. But he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet, when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. And his father said to him, Look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead, and he's come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. I love this, and that's why I call it the story of the father more than the prodigal son. Because you can see what happens with the father. One wanted his own way, and the father let him. He let him go without condemnation. Now, there are all sorts of consequences. Don't, don't ever mistake any of this for saying there's no consequences. There's all sorts of consequences. But the second one was all judgmental. And the father had grace for that too. He pleaded with him instead of bawling him out. You notice that the father never reacted with judgment in either case. And Jesus said, neither will I accuse you before the father. Your accuser is Moses, which means the law, in whom your hopes are set. So, if we set our hopes in the law, then the law is our accuser. 
and then we're not doing so good. But when we set our hopes in the Lord, he doesn't accuse. By the way, here's something new. In this study and, and some other stuff recently, for the first time I came to understand something I've never seen in the scriptures before, and that is, you know in the book of Job, how many of you ever have read the book of Job? You know the story of Job at all? Okay. So in the, in the book of Job, Satan comes towards the Father, and he stands at the right hand of God, and he basically says to God, you know, God says, hey, have you seen my servant Job? He's doing pretty good. And Satan says, yeah, that's only because you bless him. If you'd, you know, if you'd let me at him a little bit, he'd curse you and die. And God says, mm, I don't think so, but I'll tell you what. All right, just don't touch him physically. So all this stuff happens. Here's the point. Where was Satan standing? At the right hand of God, and he was the accuser. Now we know that since Jesus died and rose, he stands at where? The right hand of God. Who's the accuser now? Jesus is, and he doesn't accuse. He's got the spot, and he won't accuse. So the only accusation left is the accusation that we give each other. It's, the, it's, it's when we're accusing each other. That's the only accusations left. Satan doesn't have access there anymore. Jesus is standing there. I never saw that before. I thought that was pretty cool. So, the Father corrects us. He most certainly does, but he doesn't get even, okay? God never has to get even with you. When you're like the first son searching for yourself in all the world, remember your Father. He's waiting for you. He's got the robe. He's got the ring. He's waiting. He's looking down the road. I mean, he was out there looking down the road. He still had hope the son was coming back. And when you're like the second son and you're busy condemning others, remember, your father's just pleading with you to come and join his banquet. Very cool. But what about my sin? You know what? Sitting is more like hitting your finger with a hammer. Okay? It really is. It hurts. But it isn't judgment. It's a little stupid. If you don't like the pain. So stop with the hammers already. Okay? Because it's going to hurt. It does. But it isn't judgment. If you eat too much, you suffer the consequence. But it's not judgment. If you judge other Christians for their doctrine, you'll feel the misery of your anger. You'll feel it. It's not judgment. But it's not going to make you feel any good. Every sin carries its own consequences, but they're consequences. They're not judgment. Either way, you're loved as the son or the daughter of the father. Remember? What you believe about yourself <laughs> never defines you. Only what God believes about you actually defines you. Your beliefs and perceptions, however, do affect the experiences that you have in this world. Okay? It's, uh, it's sort, of, sort of like the analogy of the, the guy who's in the prison and doesn't realize that the door's not locked. He's still stuck because he thinks the door's locked. It's not locked 
but he thinks it is. I mean, it's, it's the funnest thing. It's the, you know, where the elephants never forget thing comes from because when they train elephants in, in Africa, what they would do is when an elephant was a baby, they would tie uh, a rope around its foot and they would pound a stake into the ground and tie the rope there. And the little elephant could not pull the stake out of the ground with that rope. So it would learn, yeah, when you got the rope on, you're stuck. So now you got this bull elephant, you know, weighing two and a half tons, and they take a little stake and they push it into the sand and they tie a rope around it and they tie a rope around the elephant's leg and, well, he's stuck. He could push a tree over, but he's stuck because he knows he's stuck in his head. So our perceptions will define our experiences, but they don't actually define us. So all we got to do is ask God for a revelation. Lord, who do you see me as? How do you see me? Given all these things we've just talked about, how do you see me, Lord? So now we know who the Father is. So who are you? Well, the Bible talks about two Adams. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the world. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not eat. There's a whole bunch of stuff in between there. There was a dig 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 Okay. So God breathed his own likeness into Adam. And then he said something really interesting that we need to get a grasp on. He said, I, through you, I have glorified my name. Do you know that you glorify God's name? God looks at you and says, see what I did? See what I did? Hey, hey, I'm pretty good. I made that. You glorify his name. So, that means that we are actually, okay, this is hard, but we are a manifestation of God's identity on the earth. We are how he glorifies his name on the earth. You are a manifestation of God's identity on the earth. And that's why attacks on identity are so evil. So Luke calls Adam, in the book of Luke, he calls Adam the son of God with a lowercase s. Just so you know, you're a son of God. So let's talk about this for a second. What was it like before the fall? Well, we talked about the intimacy that, that we already, we know that Adam and Eve had with God. We know that they ate from this tree of life. Boy, you know, I'd love to be able to eat the fruit of that tree of life directly physically. We have access spiritually to the tree of life now, but I'd love to be able to get at that physically. They experienced no shame in being naked, partially because they also had no idea of right and wrong because there was no wrong. There was nothing wrong. One thing, just don't eat that other fruit. And they, being the likeness of God, were also in the light. They were only good. They didn't know anything about evil. But then came the serpent, and he said, Ooh, if you eat this fruit, you could be like God. Hello? They were already like God. God. 
But all of a sudden, they started listening to this attack on identity. Ooh, you're not like God. You could be more like God. And so, they got seduced into this idea of being equal to God. And I don't know if you've been following the news here, but I, you know, I kind of watch the education stuff fairly closely because until a couple of years ago here, I was, uh, you know, on the board of a Christian school. And um, so I follow pretty closely what's going on. And in fact, just a couple weeks ago, the education department, well, particularly the minister of education, came out with a list of items in various school statements that are unacceptable for schools that receive any tax funding whatsoever. I don't need to get into all the politics with you here necessarily, but just understand that, you know, the government has taken a role to say that children must be educated, and so they collect taxes for the purpose of ensuring that children are educated. If children get educated at home or in a, in a private school setting, it costs the government a fraction of what it costs within a, in a public school uh, setting. But they do provide some funding uh, within that. And what they've said is there are certain things you cannot say about your school charter or about how you deal with clubs and that kind of thing if you want to have any funding whatsoever. And one of those things you can't say is that the word of God or that God is supreme over man. Not allowed to say it in Alberta. You lose your funding as a school. If you say that God is supreme over man, you lose your funding. Whoa. That's just... Again, that, that it's, that's this exact attack. That's this exact thing that the serpent was going after. We need you to be equal to God. We need you to be bigger than God. So Eve thought, effectively, not your will, but mine. Right? As she, as she went ahead, she went, not your will, but mine. And so they consumed the knowledge of good and evil, and everything changed. They were immediately blinded to the light. And now they could see darkness. And they judged each other. And they immediately had shame. And they went and hid. And now millennium later, you know, however many it is, six, eight, whatever, you still suffer the consequence from this decision. That's a pretty powerful choice. It lasts for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. His one act, one time, enslaved humanity for all time. Except, of course, there is a second Adam. And the second Adam is far more powerful than the first Adam. Jesus came to put the first fallen Adam in you to death. And restore your identity in the Father. In John 12, as his time for death approached, Jesus cried for all to hear... And here you go. This is an interesting wording. He said, Father, glorify your name. Hey, where have we heard that? Back in Genesis. And a voice from heaven sounding like thunder said, I have glorified my name. And I will glorify it once more. So God is saying that thing that was at the beginning where I glorified my name by creating Adam and Eve and putting myself into them. Yeah, they messed it up, but I'm fixing it. 
And so, in Christ, we glorify his name yet again. So Jesus went to the second garden called Gethsemane. Adam and Eve were in the first garden called Eden. So that the Father's identity could be glorified in mankind once again. And there, with weeping and travail, for lack of any other word, Jesus reversed the first Adam's choice. Where the first Adam said, not your will, but mine, Jesus in the other garden said, not my will, but yours. And then at the end, Jesus cried out, It is finished. That restored our ability to enter into life out of the law of sin and death. So you are the I will glorify my name once more. Romans 5, 17, 18. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Triumph over sin and death. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. You see how powerful that is? Jesus' victory crushed the curse of Adam. Crushed it. As a son or the daughter of the father, you are reunited with God. And that's just as sure as the original fall was. Okay? You can be just as certain. And anyone who suggests that Jesus' ability to restore is less than Adam's ability to screw it up in the first place is believing the same lie that Adam believed at the beginning. And it's a lie. It was a lie then, and it's a lie now. And the cool thing about lies is, if you stop believing them, they have no power at all. They only have power if you believe them. You have been restored by Jesus. That's got way more authority than that first Adam did. So now, the rest of the story... The news is even better than this because, and now we're going to get to some really weird stuff, back to what we were talking about at the beginning. You know how you, your name was written in the book before the world began? Well, here's, here's the other thing. The Bible tells us that the Lamb of God was slain before the world began. What? Okay, hold it. Okay, just a minute. So we had all these thousands of years of all these people. We had the Noah and all that kind of stuff going on. And there was all these things. And then Jesus came and then he died. So that changed everything. Well, kind of in the sequencing that we live in. But just understand, God created time. Time didn't exist before he created it. I know that that, that'll blow our minds if we really try and think about that for very long. Um, So if time didn't exist until he created it, Understand, time has no effect on God whatsoever. So this happening before that, happening before that, happening, yeah, whatever. Doesn't matter. That's, that's immaterial when time has no effect on you. And so it says, the Lamb of God was slain before the universe was formed. So... Huh. That means 
you were destined to be with him always, in eternity, before the world was even formed. So now, if you want to have security, if you want to feel secure, knowing that you're a child of God, that you're saved by grace through Jesus Christ, and that you live in him, understand that was set up before the universe began. That was, that's a done deal. Only blindness prevents you from seeing it now. Okay? It's a done deal. You just need to see it. So we just need to be asking God, can we see this, please? We just need to wake up and begin to see what's true. So here's who the Bible says you are. Galatians 2.20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 2.6. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Romans 8.1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Colossians 2.10. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. So here's the secret. If God had written your book before the foundations of the earth, and now he says you are complete, you've always been complete. You just need to see it. You are complete in Christ. It's the coolest thing. You don't need to worry about all of the process that there's going through as you're growing in love. Sure, there's huge process. There's great process as we grow and as we learn and as we toddle our way through and learn to walk and run and whatever. But make no never mind. In terms of your eternity, you are complete already in Christ. You are crucified with Christ, and that was done before the world began. We already saw that. Sin brings blindness, so we lose sight of that truth. So we don't want to be sinning. We don't want to be doing that stuff because it blinds us and we lose sight and then we get all caught up in shame and guilt again even though there is no condemnation. So, you know, we do that to ourselves. Stop with the hammers already. So, here's a teaching Jesus said that I used to have trouble with. He said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Oh, great. How can he expect me to become perfect? Well, he didn't say become perfect. He doesn't say become perfect. He doesn't say that at all. It said be perfect. You're in Jesus. Jesus is perfect. Embrace it. Believe it. Have faith in it. That's it. It's done. You are perfect in him. Done deal. You don't have to become anything. Good thing too, hey? The Apostle Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Your flesh tricks your mind into thinking that it's still the old you. We just need to embrace the truth. 
Paul goes on to say, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. So you were crucified with Christ, and now you're sitting with him in the heavenly realms already. Lord, give us an awareness. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our souls, open our minds, open our spirits to receive the truth that we are seated with you right now in heavenly places, that we are fully perfect with you, that we are complete in you. And Lord, the process that we go through here, Father, I pray that throughout all of it, we would always be able to take courage and encouragement from the fact of knowing that we are in you and our identity is that. It's not the fallen. It's not the flesh. Our identity is in you. And when we stumble, Lord, we say sorry and then we turn around and ask you to help us do it better. So, I'm telling you right now, you're the glory of his name and you are complete and only our awareness and experience of that completeness is in any way lacking. And that is, I won't even bother with all this other stuff. (laughs) You know what? So here's the one thing I'm going to leave you with. You will only see who you really are, and that means then you will be able to be who you really are as you surrender your attachment to all the other identities. Okay? Okay? You will only be able to be, or, well, sorry, you will only see who you are and therefore be able to be who you really are when you surrender your attachment to all other identities. If you have an identity as a realtor, surrender it, right? If you have an identity as a musician, surrender it. If you have an identity as anything else, we need to surrender those to the Lord and say, Lord, Show me who I am, seated with you, already complete in you. Just really, brief, really briefly, I'm just even thinking identity as in I'm kind. I'm a kind person. Let it go. It doesn't matter. I'm in Christ, and he is the kindness in me. Anything that we want to identify, any, anything that wants to show, to determine who we are, we need to just lay it down. It, it's so immaterial because of who he is. He is the Christ, the son of living God, and he is living within us. And so that is what we identify with. So I wrote this little paragraph here. I'm going to read it. Along the journey, try not to condemn yourself for not being more successful in your attempts to follow the way than you are. Self-condemnation only pushes you deeper into despair and unworthiness and towards substitutes for his love. Substitutes like judgment of other people or false comforts. Instead, remember that you are the son, the daughter of the father, and he doesn't condemn you. When you see yourself as he sees you, then you won't condemn you either. No, you'll be drawn to him. And that's, that's the end case. So, are we complete in Christ? Let me tell you what. You're already finished. You just have to catch up. Right? Heavenly Father, let that go deep. Father, let that go deep. 
We don't have to strive to be anything else other than loved by you. Mm. So let's just surrender our minds to Christ right now as we close out this morning. Jesus, we give you our thoughts, our perceptions, what we believe to be true about ourselves, what we believe to be true about others, and we surrender. We surrender ourselves to you. We surrender who we are to you. And we come into line with the truth of your word. We allow you to transform our thoughts. We allow you to speak into our identity. And God, we're going to believe today that this transformation is going to change us and our families in this church. We are rooted and grounded in you, Jesus. Thank you for what you did for us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Jesus. So, Lord, I just pray a blessing over this church body today. I pray for healing for those who are sick. I pray for those who have been tormented in their minds, that even today this word, this good, good word, would heal their minds. I pray, God, for those that are struggling in their finances, that they would see you as the great provider, and they would lean deep into that today. God, I ask for those that are grieving that they would pull from heaven that great comfort of knowing that time, time is in your hands. Time is in your hands, God. Lord, I ask that as we go forward and we begin to listen to who you say we are, that you would cut out with your perfect love all the fear of responding to that. You've called us, each and every one of us, to follow you in a very specific way and to live out your glory in a very specific way. And I ask God that we'd, we'd not be afraid to do that this week, but instead we'd move in the assurance of who we are in Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you would bless us and you would keep us, that you turn your face upon us, and that you'd give us great peace, that you'd quiet us with your love, and that you'd open our eyes to how you rejoice over us. And so I just bless you and release you all in the name of Jesus Christ. And um, let's meet again on Wednesday, huh?